Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, we come to going through Romans chapter 13, which of course we did not read, uh, in which Paul says that the, the powers that be don't have the sword in vain, uh, the sword being a means of violence, the sword being, uh, at least in the social context, we talk about law enforcement and capital punishment. But another topic that comes right out of that that we must talk about, and I think we need instruction about, is war. We, uh, we're, we're humans, and war is part of the reality of, of a fallen world. And I, I would think that most of us are very unfamiliar with war. And you know what I say to that? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Recognizing also that certain temptations come in with that. Right? that, that, that if, if we don't know war, which is a common experience through the long centuries of humanity, uh, fighting and warfare is something very common, and it's uncommon to have long periods of time without it. We think just the opposite, because we've had long periods of time without fighting, certainly on our own land and, and so on, where we think this is the norm. I tell you it's not. The norm is, is warfare and trying to sort that out and figure that out. And trying to come and preach a sermon about it, I have found to be difficult. It's hard to pull this together and, and make sense of all of it. And you'll notice as we've been going through Romans 13, two-thirds of the sermon is like introduction to the last point, which is something from the text. I don't know if you've noticed that, but that's what I've been doing. Because I think there's so much biblical data that has to come together for us to understand the things we're talking about. We can't just pick it out of the text. It's not The, the text is very dense and, and, uh, and terse in what it says, and there's a lot to be, to be said. The first thing I want to do before really looking at what I've decided to do is simply look at this text where God gives us a whole chapter in Deuteronomy about how to make war Israel. Well, that's important for us. That's, that's an important biblical revelation. Uh, we are Israel in Christ Jesus. We're sons of Abraham uh, being baptized into uh, that great uh, the son of Abraham, Jesus. So we know that the scriptures for us, yet at the same time we recognize that things are written in a context to God's people where we're not. Right, there's historical context in Revelation, uh, that is the revelation of, of the prophets and finally of the scripture, that is for particular times in the history of God's people and, and not applicable in the exact same way in other times. So we want to be careful as we handle this text, but on the other hand, I didn't want to come and just say, here's the, you know, the theory of just war, and here are the seven points, and like, I didn't want to do that. I think it's easy enough for any of you, if you want to say, what is the Christian doctrine of just war? A, a, a faithful war, a war that is rightly fought, that you can look up pretty quickly, uh, the, the doctrine of, of, of just war, and you'll find Augustine developed that. At least he's, he's renowned for de- developing in the early church, and then in the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas developing a little further, and the church using that through the years to understand how Christians are to, particularly Christians in civil government, right? because I'll take another step sideways here, the church doesn't wage war like this. Right, like Deuteronomy 20, we don't take our swords and our chariots and besiege a city and so on. Right, the warfare we've been given, which is very clear in the New Testament over and over again, is a spiritual war. But that doesn't mean that the civil government doesn't have the power of the sword and that it may need to make war, or may not. Right, so that's what we're talking about. I want to be clear about that. I'm not talking about the church itself as an institution or organization taking up arms to go fight its oppressors, but rather as individual Christians. What's your relationship to the war powers of the United States of America? Uh, what is the church generally, uh, the relationship of, of the church to the war powers of the country or the municipality, whatever that the, the church finds itself in? 
And to begin with, then, uh, just kind of a couple introductory comments. War is a lot of things. And in my experience, war is nothing. I've never been to war. I've never even been in the, you know, the military service. Uh, never had to salute. Never. I know nothing. I know a little bit about shooting guns and uh, shooting squirrels and chipmunks, and that's about the extent of my violence dealing. You know, but we live in a world that has much violence, and we need to think as Christians how to handle something like that. And as we think about war, a lot of my thinking comes from what I've read. It's the stories I've read about war, or the movies that I've seen about war, and it's easy to think of war as a glorious thing. When, when, do the, when do the great glories of humans, you know, humanity come out? Oftentimes in war, in battle. We see the heroic, we see the glorious. Um, I sing of arms and of a man. Anyone knows that opening line from, from the Aeneid? He's, he's singing of war and the man of war, Aeneas. That's, that's the great, you know, Latin uh, epic, uh, epic poem of the Aeneid to say, well, what, what are we as Romans? Oh, well, Aeneas helps us out. He's a man of war. And I'm singing songs of, of arms and of a man of arms. So there's that aspect to war that in certain ways it's a glorious reality, particularly to look back on or to think about in retrospect. I think that's a great deal different from the experience of war firsthand. And we can, you can just imagine the atrocities, not just of those who are killed in war, that can be bad enough, but even the experiences of those, of those doing the killing and what they suffer with. So I remember congratulating, thanking, thanking a military, a veteran he had his hat on. I appreciate when veterans have hats and such on so you can know they're veterans. Otherwise, you know, you can't smell it on them usually. Um, but if they're wearing a hat, you can see, and then so you can go up and thank them for their military service, which I've instructed my little ones to do sometimes. And we're going up to a fellow at a coffee shop and saying, hey, man, thanks, thanks for your service. And his response back to me is, the real heroes are the guys that didn't come back. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, maybe. Um, probably not, actually. But anyway, I, I, I think that death is death, and there you go. You're done, and you're before the Lord. It's everyone else who suffers around that that I think the suffering elongates and stretches out through time and other things that are, that are all that comes out of war. I think of, anyway, I've, there are a hundred war movies in my mind right now to try to say, yeah, I remember that scene here, remember that scene here, and, and even kind of trying to participate in war, it can, be, it can be a highly emotional experience just to, in our minds, participate in some things that go on in war, let alone to actually do it. And have that be part of your life and part of what you struggle with down through the years from there as well. So war can be a great and glorious thing. But on the other hand, war is also a terrible thing. It, it does not come without sin. And there are certainly some Christian traditions or some traditions within Christianity that say the war simply is a sin. But I don't think we can have the Bible in hand and say that. I don't think we can just simply say war is sin. But we can say war is never without sin. And that's an important aspect as we kind of think through this just, just a little bit. When we think of war and just war, again, it's not the church making war. Our war is spiritual, and our weapons of war are spiritual to take down strongholds. Right? There's an analogy of the Christian faith all the way along through the scriptures, and of course all the way back in the Old Testament as well, that we're at war, and we're making war, but, and I just present this as a distinction between Christianity and Islam, Christianity, although sometimes it gets tied in with the state and we can see it dilute that way, but Christianity has spiritual weapons of war that she deploys. Islam has weapons of physical war that they deploy. Right? In, in the name of Allah, 
run over North Africa in the name of Allah, run up the Levant and everything else. Or you can, you know, for Muslims, at the end of the story historically is where people will convert or not. Uh, for Christians, that's happened a little bit, but typically not. Typically, it's Christianity going in, usually after empire. That's, that's another thing, because empire usually moves with swords also. But coming in saying, we have words of salvation. We have the balm of Gilead. We have something to offer you. And then, again, tie that back in with education hour, where missions turns into uh, just trying to export our goodness over there. Just trying to get Americanism over there and our stable democracy, so we think, over there. That's not missions. Missions is taking them the message that they don't have. It's giving people the message of Jesus Christ that they don't have by nature, and they don't have in their society, but we're offering it as, as missions. But as we, as we look at war, then, and these particular commands of war, we oftentimes talk about the movement into war. Usually people talk about just war theory or just war doctrine as the, the appropriate things to move into war. So we can think of it that way. But we also think of the way people, or uh, the Israelites here, or how Christians should conduct themselves in war. Right, that, that if, if a faithful person is going to fight in the armed forces here in the United States of America or back in ancient Israel, what's required of them? How are they not only to enter into war, how are they to conduct themselves in war? And what should be the, out, the, 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 uh, the vision for the, uh, the goal? Right? What, do you, what comes out of this? Right? And, uh, and we, we see all that here in chapter 20 of Deuteronomy. So let's just look through that text here, and I'll kind of make applications here and there as we just run through the text. So right there in chapter 20 of Deuteronomy. When you go to war against your enemies and see the horses and chariots and army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. You shall not be afraid of them, for Yahweh your God is with you who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so right from the first place, we have instruction to Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. This peculiar to Israel. Right? God didn't bring up the Amalekites out of Egypt with a strong hand. A strong arm and a, you know, a mighty hand, right? He brought Israel. So there's a particular nation that God's dealing with and saying, when you go to battle, when you go to besiege a city, and you see their army, you see their weapons of war, you see their stuff, don't be scared. Why don't be scared? Because I, your God, am with you, and I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember that? Israel, do you remember that? Where you were outgunned and outnumbered and Pharaoh and all his armies, and you were just twisting in the wind? And Yahweh came through and destroyed the armies of Egypt and brought Israel dry-footed on the other side. Remember that? The same God now goes out to fight for you. Okay, so there's this reality that Israel has a God, Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, the one who's created all things. That's our God as well. Right? It's, it's God chose Israel to keep his oracles and to finally bring forth the Messiah, who brings all nations into Israel by his death and resurrection. And so then we are on the other side of the cross here in the empty tomb, saying, okay, well, we know that in Israel here, Israel was, had a national God, Yahweh. And so we might scratch our heads and say, well, sh- should we have a national God? Should it be the true living God as the God of the United States of America? Well, let's let that sit with you, because one of the things, and this is interesting too, as I read through, and I've been reading through like the Reformed Confessions uh, on the civil magistrate, and particularly powers of war and things I was trying to pull together. Uh, well, let's put it this way. The 16th century and the 17th century reformed Christians have a very different view of civil government than we do. Go read them. You'll, you'll be astounded how not American they are. Okay? And maybe that's good, 
Maybe that's bad. Maybe it's a mix of good and bad. I don't know. But what I do know is it's different. It's a different sense, and I'll tell you how it's a sense, because they look at their civil government and say, well, of course it's under God. Of course it belongs to God. Of course it should be faithful to God. It's God's instrument. It's God's instrument, just like Paul says here in Romans 13, right? It's God's instrument of wrath and of of reward. This is God's deacon. Of course it should serve the true and living God. What else should it serve? Should it serve an idol? Would that be a better plan? I think, funny enough, as American Christians, we often say, yeah, yeah, we should serve a secular idol. That's what the government should do. And I think, I don't buy it. I don't know, I don't know the answers. I'm not quite sure how to lead everyone through the problems, and then there are very many thorny problems uh, with church and state. Uh, but anyway, we have a situation here where there wasn't that same thorny problem with Israel. They knew who the God of Israel was. They might rebel against him. They might not serve him. But there was no question that Israel's God was Yahweh, and he says, now look at me, when you go to battle, I'm the one who gives you the victory. I'm the one who goes out before you. So don't look and be scared. Now that's an easy enough thing to grab on. So Christian, we don't need to have like a thoroughgoing covenant theology and figure out what Israel is in the church and all this to have that come. It's easy for us to look at our opposition. It's easy for us to look at the opposition to Christ and his kingdom in this world and in our own lives. And be scared. Be timid. And think, oh, there's so much power there. There's so much influence. There are all the influencers out there. And say, well, the influencer of influencers is at the right hand of our Heavenly Father. He knows how to get the job done. He will build his kingdom, my brothers and sisters. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. So we know that Christ has this thing in his hands and is doing what he wants. So therefore, don't be scared. Look to your God for strength. Think of Psalm 124. You know, that unless Yahweh had been on our side, they would have swallowed us up alive. But as Yahweh our God, Yahweh the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth, the God of the Gentiles too and the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to us and says, don't fear. He has this in hand. And the same message between ancient Israel Let's keep rolling in verse 2. And when you draw near to battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people. This will indicate at least that there's a priestly reality in Israel going out to battle. It's not just a secular consideration. It's not merely a consideration of do we have enough like people or ammunition or whatever it is that we need, war material, to make war successfully. I'm sure that's part of it. Jesus talks that way uh, as far as the parable goes. But it's also a spiritual reality. It is Yahweh, their God, who's taking them out, and the very priests themselves come and talk to the people. And they say, Hear, O Israel, today you're drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not panic or be in dread. For Yahweh, your God, is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. So making the people of God trust in their God, even in something as... Oh, how should we say, nuts and bolts as killing people and besieging a city. Right? It's not a, it's not a kind of problem out there that I hope God gives an answer to sometime. We have plenty of those. It's a very immediate problem of they want to kill us, and we're trying to kill them. And Yahweh is going to give the victory. Okay, that's what's going on. And let me also mention, um, how do sieges typically go? It's like happy times. Everyone's excited to have the armies outside the walls, eating well. Healthy? Not at all. Right? This is terrible stuff. This is terrible stuff. Yet God gives his commands around it. 
and how to do it. And I want you to think about that. There may be a situation where, like when Jesus is teaching about divorce, um, and, and they respond to him and say, well, why did Moses give us a certificate of divorce? And Jesus' answer is, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses gave you this. Right? Because you're not good at being married and being faithful and loving one another. So there's, a, there's, there's part of the law that's given in recognition of that. And I wonder if this sort of command, this, this chapter of commandments, is a similar sort of thing. It's because of the hardness of our hearts as fallen men that we need commands about all sorts of things, including how to make war um, in, a, in a faithful or in a, in a way that glorifies God in the way that he tells us to. Verse 5. When the officers speak to the people saying, is there anyone who's built a house and not dedicated it? Okay. So you got a house, you know, if you, if you build a house and not been able to get in there and, and live in it, I've got a kitchen remodel going on. I kind of feel the weight of this right here. You know, if I'm going off to going off to war and come back and says, is someone else going to use my, like, uh, you know, my sink and my refrigerator? No, I want to use that thing. Anyway, so there's, there's a, and then, so you got the building of the house in the first place. Um, you have the planting of the vineyard in the second place, so some kind of development of fruit. And then third, you have uh, a marriage, right? Have you, have you, are you betrothed to a, a woman and haven't, haven't gone into her, haven't gone and, and consummated that marriage and, and spent time uh, that way with your wife, making her happy for a year. So we can pull other commandments together from the scripture around these things as well. But what's the point of all three of them? Kind of how they all hang together. Um, having built a house, having planted a vineyard, having betrothed oneself to a woman and not, not taken her. It's that, that there's a war-making reality here. But beyond the war, there's also just the living realities of our lives. Right? It's easy. Listen, it's easy I think when people, when countries go to war, to let that be the absolute. Everything is dedicated to this war effort, right? And sometimes we need to sacrifice much toward a war effort. But I think the issue here is God says, the war effort's important. I got that. You need to make sure you're living faithfully. And there are these things that war does. It, like, kills people. It stops the lives of people. And in certain ways, we need the lives of people to continue going. God's built things in such a way that we need this continuation. And that comes in with building a house, and that comes in with the vineyard, which, by the way, is five years, because the first three years it sits uh, fallow, the fruit does nothing. The fourth year is basically um, the offering to God for the fruit of the fourth year. And then the fifth year you get to enjoy the fruit. So planting a vineyard, we get you out of the military for five years, uh, as far as military service this way, um, which I'm sure could be abused, people. And that's the next section down, say, you know, the, the, the commanders come back in and say, okay, now listen, um, is anybody like, really scared and just, you know, doesn't really want to be here because that weakness will infect your brothers? That, that, that fear will infect the people around you who are trying to be strong and courageous in the name of Yahweh and, and, and step into this violence and step into this fight, and we don't want this gangrenous fear in here, and so there's, there's even an out for that. So war is not absolute. That's important because I think people take it that direction. And they make it absolute. And everything is subservient to winning this war. And it doesn't matter what we do, so long as we win. So long as we have victory, America, or whatever it is, whatever your country is, whatever your people who are, that are going to battle. But it's not so. There are more important things than war, even in the context of war. And there are other things that I won't mention, but um, we'll see it a little bit, I think, in, in chapter 23, if you're going to look at, you know, keep reading through Deuteronomy, of, of purity... On the battlefield, purity in approaching, we're talking about like kind of covenantal purity as far as that goes, but also purity as far as actions go um, on the battlefield. How, how it is you conduct yourself, because 
wartime is a time where it's easy to let your passions go, right? Some of us maybe have a cruel streak. Some of us maybe have, have something in our hearts that's dark and kind of likes hurting other people and so on. There are people like that out there, by the way. There are maybe some of us sitting here that struggle with something like that. Say, I get that. Uh, got a bit of a cruel streak myself. And there are situations in which there's just all sorts of liberty given to that kind of uh, violence or people that want to hurt. And any of you who have served and have, especially have been in, in battle, I think, have found some of that maybe in your own heart, but certainly among the others. We don't get to act just however we want and treat people just however we want, even in war. Even when it's time to kill another person in battle, there are ways in which we're going to be restrained. We're not going to have everything on the table. Some of my students in, uh, in classical conversations, uh, week by week, I think it's funny, they kind of mock the idea of uh, laws of war. Because they're like, well, what does that count? You know, you can say don't do this, but if they want to do it, they're going to do it anyway. So, yeah, okay, well, that's how people operate. <laughs> Nothing new there, uh, whether it's war or anything else. But we can all agree that I think this, you know, the, the, even the modern wars of, laws of warfare are going to be coming out of this sort of idea from the scriptures. We have to contain this thing. This thing is awful and terrible, and we can't just let it go. There have to be boundaries of our actions and of our thoughts. And we see that here even with the people going into Right, going into battle on, on this side of, of battle. Okay, and then we're working down to verse 10. This is the beginning. This is all kind of working into, the, into war and then the conduct in war, which I just got into is next. When you draw near to the city to take it, uh, to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. Okay, so there's, and this, is, this is one of the just war doctrine points, uh, is that war should be a last resort. War should be a last resort. Making, making war should, shouldn't be at the front of the list should be at the end of the list. Now, I just ask you to think about that. How often does that list get really short for people? Right? They'll suffer an insult and want to go to war. Right? I want violence on you because you stepped on my foot, because you insulted my dog or my mother. Um, and, it's, and in that sense, we have the, the text, Lex Talionis saying, slow down. That's not how justice works. If there's something that's been done to you, then the response would be of the same variety back, not, not twice or sevenfold or whatever it is. Uh, but we have here uh, this idea of offering peace as you come to the city. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Uh, to avoid war, to be able to strike out a peace agreement. And in this case, the peace agreement involves basically the slavery of the people in the city. Right? That's what, that's what goes on there. Um, it says, if they respond peaceably to you and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and, uh, and shall serve you. Okay, so we have Israel going to war. Presumably before Yahweh, for, for faithful good reasons. That's something I kind of forgot to mention also. One of the uh, principles of just war is there's got to be a faithful reason for going to war. There's got to be a good reason for going, not just I've been insulted or, or even I've been uh, you know, stolen from or something like that. There are lots of ways to handle those problems shy of violence, and particularly large-scale violence. But we go, they're going to, to war before Yahweh. He's leading their armies and to offer peace ahead of time. And if they receive that peace, then they become slaves of Israel. Now, we don't like that because we know slavery is evil, but we're wrong. Slavery is not evil. Uh, slavery may not be the right position to be in as a human. You might want to get out of it. Paul mentions that. says, hey, if you've got a chance to be free, go for it. But he never says, end slavery, it's evil. We say that kind of thing because we think it because we've been taught that. 
as Americans because we know virtually nothing about slavery. We just kind of know an American version that has to do with, like, throwing blacks in chains, and that was no good. And I agree it was no good, but there's a lot more to be said about slavery. Here it is, saying you're going to make these people your slaves. So anyway, you can smoke on that one in your pipe as you go. Uh, and, and it doesn't get any easier as we continue down through. And this is one of the things, and I want you to be clear on this, don't be embarrassed by your Bible. Don't be embarrassed by it. Don't be embarrassed what God has said. Just because men say something else, be embarrassed for them. Be embarrassed if they don't take God's word seriously. Don't let that be the case for you. Hold on to God's word and say, let God be true and every man a liar. Um, I'll figure it out. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable with slavery. Okay. I'm not comfortable here with the slaughter of all the men or all the people in the city which is coming. Okay, I get all that. But God doesn't really tell us to be comfortable. He tells us to obey. Um, and we need to figure out what it is we need to obey, what it is that God's put in front of us to be obedient to, to be faithful to. And I don't mean that this thing's just lifted off the page and the United States Army should just employ these tactics right here. Okay, that's not a faithful, I think, understanding of how to read the Bible. But the United States military should be based upon employing tactics like these, even in a different situation in the modern world. In other words, the Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is valuable. It's valuable to the Christian in the daily walk and individually. It's valuable to the church and what she does, but it's also valuable beyond that, including even in war-making policies. Verse 12, But if it makes no peace with you, um, if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when Yahweh gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. That's verse 13. And all the males would be the fighting folks. Generally, I don't, I, don't, I don't imagine it means every single male all the way down to, like, the tiniest baby. Though possibly that's what it means. It seems like the, the fighting force would be these males. But the non-fighting, the non-combatants, the women and the children and so on, we have different here. You're going to take them. Verse 14. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, and all its spoil you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which Yahweh your God has given you. Okay, so... Again, that may strike, strike us as strange. Oh, well, you know, the spoil of battle, kind of a dicey thing. Says Yahweh says, I, I gave this to you. I gave you the victory, and I gave you the spoils from that Israel. Enjoy them well. Be faithful in enjoying these things that God's given through battle. But in the cities of these people, uh, where Yahweh is giving you for an inheritance, in other words, the difference here is like the city of Israel, because remember Deuteronomy is given as a second law, right, a second articulation of the law before Israel's going in for the conquest to take over the promised land, which is where these commands immediately fall. He says, hey, in the promised land here, um, you're going to wipe out everyone in the cities, right? And the farther cities out there that aren't part of the land, you're going to, if, if they, whatever, the, the, you know, the slavery thing, if they give up, if they give peace, if they don't, they want to besiege, then you're going to kill all the men, and then the spoils and the, uh, the women and children all come with that. And it goes all the way down to verse 16. But to the cities of these people that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. So we have God commanding his people that when they go into the promised land, they're going to kill everybody in those cities. They're going not just to kill the people, but even the animals. Everything that breathes all the way down is dead. And what's the reason God gives for that. First of all, does God give any justification? I know you're not going to like this, and I know folks in the modern world are going to say, look how mean and jerky and, and wicked God is. Right? That's what they do. They take passages like this and say, yeah, look how wicked God is. How can you worship a God like that? They say, well, this is the only living God, so I don't really have no choice in the first place. Um, and 
where else are we going to go? Who else has the words of life, as, as Peter says? But quit being embarrassed by it. Um, have there been, a, if, if you think this is an atrocity, okay, if you think that God telling his people to go into the promised land and kill everything that breathes is an atrocity, maybe you're right. I don't think so. But are there other atrocities in the name of freedom, uh, in the name of religion, in the name of whatever that have been occurred? Of course. Humanity is full of all sorts of atrocities like this. Um, all sorts of murders. But this is God saying, this is my land for my people. And not only that, this iniquity here has been baking for hundreds of years. Uh, there's an issue there of the, of the iniquity of, of the, the inhabitants of the land. God says, we're going to wait a little while until their, till their iniquity is just right. And then it's going to be judgment for them. People of God, listen. Do you think it's going to be less violent and less scary on the day of the Lord when Jesus comes? When people are crying out for the mountains to cover them up and holes in the ground that they could get a flee from the wrath of God? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's only through Jesus Christ that the fear is removed. It's only through the mediator. Of course it's, uh, it's a terrible thing for a sinner to fall into the hands of the Holy One. That's what's going on here. Except that it's being meted out, the, at least the earthly justice, is being meted out by the swords of the, uh, the army, the armies of Israel. And then the new covenant, as we get there, the separation here, we have, and it's still separation of like kind of church and state in the old, in the old we still have leaders of state that aren't the leaders of the church and so on. But as it comes into the new covenant, we see this separation more clearly where the church is a spiritual body with spiritual weapons for spiritual war, but there's still the sword to the state for law enforcement, for capital punishment, and for making war as well that the scripture teaches about. Let's move on forward before we, we get stuck and we're not moving. So we have this total destruction of the, of the people and the animals in the cities of the promised land, um, but a different policy for those that are outside the promised land. And here's why, verse 18. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. Okay, so what God's doing is saying, I don't even want you looking around at what all of these seven nations here, list six, but the seven nations of the promised land are doing for their gods, the worship that they produce. I don't want you even seeing it because I don't want you to do it. I don't want you to worship me, God says, the way they worship their gods which God says over and over again, uh, even in the book of Deuteronomy here. And part of that, then, is, is that's the basis for saying, I want your worship and your lives, Israel, as you're coming into the land that I promised you to be pure, to be uh, according to what I've revealed, not according to what these godless nations are doing ahead of you. And, if you, yeah, and so you might not sin against Yahweh your God. So God wants Israel to be pure. He wants to wipe out the people that are there and plant Israel in the land and, uh, and have it grow. Have it grow in worship and grow in faithfulness. Now, one more thing here as we move into verse 19 and finish it up here. Um, there's issues around the trees. Now, I like the trees because it reminds me of Tolkien. Uh, it makes me think of his storytelling and how the trees factor into uh, to Middle Earth and whatnot and, and that they're important. And here the trees are in view. Another thing that pops in mind is the great olive trees on the, the Mount of Olives opposite Jerusalem. And how when the Romans came and set siege to the city of Jerusalem they absolutely tore down all of those trees. Those hundreds and hundreds of years old trees, uh, they're gone, right? They're, the, the mountainside's built. God says, don't, make, don't wage war that way. Israel, when you're waging war, you're going to respect the trees. Right? You, you know, there's a difference in what goes on. Certainly fruit trees, ones that produce. Uh, it's a little bit like, 
the man who has the house he's built needs to go back to it, or a wife that he hasn't taken. It's like there are things of life that need to keep rolling and keep going. War doesn't end at all. Right? War is something that has to happen, but we have to understand there's life going on below and beyond that. And uh, don't take an axe to those trees, especially the fruit trees. We want those to continue to produce and give life down through the ages. And also, not just for the people that are there, but if Israel is going to take over the land, and God's promised them that they're going to eat fruit from trees that they didn't plant, if they kill all the trees, they can't eat the fruit from the trees they didn't plant. Right? So it's like you're not going in for total destruction. You're going in for the annihilation of the human sin factor, much like the flood and judgments of God. Yet, God has this nature and this thing is working along that he wants you to keep and preserve. And the fruit trees are a part of that. Uh, but the other trees are not fruit trees. You can cut down for your seed works. You've got to make war. And war is destructive, and war is even destructive to trees, even though they're not combatants. Uh, so, the faithful warrior, the faithful soldier in Israel is going out to war before God. His heart is strong before the Lord because he knows the Lord's leading them. Um, God says there are things of life. If you need to pay attention to them, get out and pay attention. The rest of us will go to war and God will give the victory. And when he does, here's how you're to treat the people. Here's what you're to do. Um, And then here's how you're to treat the land and other things that are going on as well. So these are all rules around war. How Israel is to make war. Now, just to kind of wrap around, I don't mean take chapter 20 of Deuteronomy, and slap it down in the middle of the American Constitution and say, okay, this is how America makes war. That's not really how we read the Bible. We want to we take these laws and, what, at least using Westminster's language, find the general equity of them. What's, what's in here that God's getting at? What's this command getting at? And how can we apply that same command and get at the same thing even in, in a different context? Well, wars change, and the warfare of the ancient world is not the warfare of the modern world. I don't pretend to like be able to detail all that out for you. I just know that there's a difference there. And one of the things near flip to Isaiah chapter 2. I'll read this passage, this famous passage, as one of the great hopes and prophecies of, of the faithful. The faithful Israelites and faithful Christians as we come look at verse 6 of chapter 2, Isaiah. Is that the right one? Negative. Verse 1 of chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now listen, here we go. It shall come to pass in the latter days that on the mountain of the house of Yahweh, the, that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established in the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come saying, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Okay, so we have all these Gentiles floating and pushing into the house of God because God's revealed himself to Israel. And God's given his commandments and his law and even the good news, the gospel, to Israel. And the Gentiles are figuring it out and coming. But there's more than that verse 4. For out of Zion, almost, verse, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall, any, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. So I don't, again, stand here and pretend to say I know exactly how this all fits together. But I do know one of the great benefits, one of the great works of God and the Prince of Peace is to bring peace. To bring peace to earth. 
we get that in the Christmas story and, and so on, that there's peace coming, but not in, a, not in a way that maybe the world would seem likely. Like, if we think back about warfare and the ancient world, everybody knows that the way you subdue your enemy and are victorious is you go kill them all. You go put everything to death. And you live, and you get to make the rules afterwards. And that's a big win. But the kingdom of Christ isn't that way. The peace that's talked about here, where it's like, not only are they not going to lift up swords against one, they're not going to study war anymore, they're going to take all the, all the industry and all the money and all the energy put into killing people and destroying things, and they're going to turn it into production. They're going to turn it into something better, something that's going to grow and serve humanity rather than destroying humanity. Do you see that? Right, a sword is a weapon of death. A plowshare is a weapon of production. And you're going to take their swords and they're going to beat them in the plowshares, right? That's the idea. This is what the gospel is for. It's to transform the hearts of people so that they don't want to make war anymore. Sometimes we need to make war. Sometimes the state needs to exercise its war powers. Right, I'm not the authority on that, and I'm not going to tell you. The, the, the authorities that exist are before God and they're established by Him. Sometimes they need to make war on Christians. Sometimes we need to be involved in that. And I don't have a lot to tell you as far as how to decide something like that other than go look at those just war uh, you know, doctrines and see how they stack up against Deuteronomy 20 and other passages and say, okay, before God, I'm able to go thus far and no further. But we do know that our goal isn't to make war, certainly not with weapons of war. It's to make spiritual war so that God grants this kind of peace. Right? That men are actually changed. And it's not just, I've gone from having a warring heart and a warring spirit, and now I have a peaceful heart, but I'm still going to kill you. Um, it's, I was going to kill you, and God's changed my heart, now I don't want to kill you anymore. I don't want to make war. I don't want to destroy. I want to produce. I want to grow. When Peter pulled out his sword and chopped off the ear of the servant, what did Jesus say to him? Peter, put away your sword. Put away your sword, Peter. This is not the way this is done. Hey, if I wanted to call legions of angels to come and overthrow, I could do it. Jesus knows how to play the power game. But what did he do? He came as a humble servant, and he laid down his own life for the life of the world. That's how Jesus conquers. He doesn't conquer with swords. He doesn't conquer with tanks and bombs and missiles. That's the way men do it. That's the way we do it. Right? We kill and kill and destroy and destroy until I'm the last one standing and yea me. Jesus Christ goes the other direction. Jesus Christ will have dominion of the nations. Jesus Christ will rule over the hearts of men and over the civilization of men by his giving of himself to death. And by his father raising him to his life in the third day. And now he's enthroned at the father's right hand, building his kingdom. Not with weapons of war, but with the gospel with the good news of Jesus Christ, with which he overcomes sinners and turns enemies into friends. Now, God has given war powers to the state, and he has given them that responsibility, and he will hold them responsible for those decisions. Those typically are not our decisions, Christian. Sometimes they are. And if you're in state and you're a leader in state, you have to make those decisions. May God bless you to make them well. We need Christians in, in positions making those decisions. They're not easy places. They're hard decisions. But for most of us, that's not the situation. We honor the powers that God has put in, in place. We recognize those powers have the power of the sword, which isn't a comfortable thing, but it's the true reality on the sinful earth. But we make war differently, Christians. 
we make war like Jesus made war. Not with swords and spears and atomic power, but with love and self-sacrifice. We give ourselves up. And as the Christians forego wrath, like we were talking about in Romans 12, and, and give place to it to God and to the state, So okay, we don't need to have our own comeuppance. We don't have to get our pound of flesh. God will deal with justice. Let us love our enemies and use the weapons of war, the gospel and the, the scriptures and Christian fellowship and prayer. Let's use those weapons of war that God may spread peace through the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.